welcome to Farmerama and welcome to Glasgow. This month, we're bringing you three stories from the fringes of the COP26 conference. We'll hear about the challenges of growing food in Scotland's largest city, an innovative and inclusive project researching young people's experience of the food system, and an urgent call for solidarity with migrant workers. We're really grateful to our community of supporters. It's thanks to you that we can bring you these stories every month. Even the smallest contribution is a big help. If you'd like to become a supporter, visit patreon.com forward slash farmerama. Here in Glasgow, COP was a pretty surreal experience. It felt to me like a combination of a fortified trade fair, an academic conference, an art festival and a protest. The official blue zone was a huge area right in the middle of the city, shut off behind towering metal fences patrolled by police and private security. Across the river in the publicly accessible green zone, there were little stalls where startups, academics, NGOs and charities could share their work as well as a big, airy pavilion reserved for COP's principal partners, the likes of Unilever, Sainsbury's and the Royal Bank of Scotland. And then in church halls, green spaces and community centres all over the city, there was almost a festival atmosphere with talks, workshops, discussions, concerts, exhibitions and film screenings. And many of them were platforming Indigenous people, people of colour and local residents, in stark contrast to the official conference. In this episode, we'll be hearing from some of the people involved with these fringe events. People who are already doing the work, living the work, of climate action, climate justice and food sovereignty. One of the many, many food-related fringe events was an urban-growing Doors Open Day, organised by the Glasgow Community Food Network. It was a chance for people to visit some of the city's market and community gardens to see and hear about their work. One of them was Tenement Veg, a market garden that's based, for now at least, on a small plot of land close to where I live, on the south side of Glasgow. I went along to meet Mark and Kelly from the Tenement Veg team. So we are a workers' co-op and we run a seasonal box scheme in Glasgow. We met in 2017 on a food growing program and decided that we would like to continue growing food and yeah we were looking for a a space and a project to get involved with and there wasn't really a lot going on in the city so we felt like the only way to carry on really was to start start a new growing project. We run a box scheme for 22 households at the minute and supply some wholesale and work with the community led supermarket or grocery shop and run volunteer sessions at the site. So we're about two and a half miles from the city centre. Most of our VegBox members live within a 20 minute walk of here. We're in quite a dense neighbourhood. There's lots of tenement buildings around. It was a old tennis court as well. So it's used to have red ash underneath um, and we've just been kind of building the soil on top for a few years. So we've been adding quite a lot of uh, green waste compost. We practice no dig, 
and use lots of cover crops and green manures. I guess one of the challenges is the site is quite small, so we quite quickly reached its capacity and that links into another challenge. We're looking for a bigger site with a longer term lease. Yeah, and I guess one thing to mention is we live in Govan Hill and there's a lot of deprivation and food poverty where we live, so we're quite aware of the need to make local food accessible to people in our neighbourhood. We received some funding from the Land Workers Alliance Community Resilience Fund and that project is about making food more accessible and making sure locally grown sustainable produce is available for people who might not otherwise have access to it. And so we were looking at options of who to work with in our neighbourhood and the People's Pantry, Govan Hills People's Pantry seemed like an obvious project. They have a community shop um, and people pay a subscription to do a weekly shop and there's a real emphasis on choice and fresh produce so it's a move away from food banks. So the funding we got from the Land Workers Alliance means we provided like a weekly harvest to the shop for three or four months and when that funding ran out we used the pay it forward scheme from our VegBox customers and then we used that money to provide food to families in the area and to carry on working with the People's Pantry. I guess tenancy has been a tricky issue so we moved here in 2020 and we had a one-year lease which was then extended until the end of 2021 yeah and we now know we can stay till the end of 2022 but yeah not having like a long-term lease makes it quite hard for crop planning and just planning in general and we have like a long waiting list like people get in touch all the time to sign up for the veg box but yeah we do 22 boxes and some wholesale and that is the capacity really getting access to land finding land it has been a long slog you try a variety of different ways and speak to different people and i mean it is the challenge in the city like there's a lot of land is up for development it's earmarked for you know building houses and whatever else and there's not going to be much room for ecological food grown you know we've been working with the council a bit and stuff but We've not really got anything yet. We've been out the city and stuff like that, looked at old farms, like way out the city, but then you don't really get the benefit from growing close to home and the people who would buy it wouldn't get the benefit either. So it's definitely a challenge. It's something that needs to be prioritized, really. Supply chain issues, fertilizer shortages, the food system is coming home whether we like it or not in Britain you know it's crunch time almost so whether the government or the council prioritizes land or not we're gonna have to at some point. Yeah I feel like it's a really frustrating process um, yeah extremely slow I guess there are people you know everywhere who want to set up growing projects and they have the energy and the enthusiasm and the will to do it, but there's this massive block in the way. It's not a transparent thing about who owns land. Like, you know, you kind of see a patch of land and finding out who owns it takes a lot of work. And yeah, I guess often like if you put in a land registry request, it costs you money to find out who owns that bit of land, which is pretty mad. There's also like a question about 
post-Brexit agricultural policy and support and it definitely feels like urban food growing is missing. There's a lot of support for rural food growing but urban support definitely needs addressing. We've had a variety of sites but within very close distance to each other, probably within what, eight mile radius maybe or something over the past few years. Our second year of growing probably say that was 2018 and that was super dry. I think that was the year that Glasgow had the record of the hottest day that it ever had and sometimes we'd turn up and the grass was on fire. I've never seen grass on fire in Glasgow. Last year was extremely wet. It was very humid and wet, basically from July forwards. So we had lots and lots and lots of slugs. We also had like mildew and, you know, disease damage for crops because of the moisture really and the heat. And this year, I guess it's been completely different, hasn't it? Less slugs, much drier. Just the heat was a real challenge. And it, and it was a real struggle physically working in it. Definitely changed working patterns a little bit, like coming out a little bit earlier in the mornings and then going in between like 1 and 4 p.m. Just irrigating became another challenge. There is a little bit of rainwater catchment on site, but it didn't rain for six weeks. And when it did rain, it rained a tiny little amount. Yeah, so having to do a lot more watering on the one hand, some crops grew very quickly, but some crops really struggled. I think one of the real challenges is the unpredictability. So if you knew in advance it's going to be a really hot, dry summer, then maybe like planting varieties that are more suited to that. And I think it's that not knowing is the, is the real challenge. But yeah, I guess there's like a certain acceptance of like, of not all the crops surviving. And if we have a really diverse range of crops growing then you know that should bolster the kind of resilience. Now also I mean we don't do it probably because of the size of space but seed saving as well. The crops are doing well. The crops that tend to look like they've survived and they've thrived and they've given us a lot of food as well. Probably trying to make sure we save some of that seed. The more we grow the more we're going to find out what's going to be able to deal with unpredictable conditions within a diverse selection of crops. So obviously COP is happening. What's your feeling about COP? Do you have any... <laughs> Do you really want to ask that? Yeah! Do you have any expectations, any hopes? Do I have any expectations about COP? No, definitely not. It's a mirage. It's built to deceive people that the system can abolish itself, which it can't. Capitalists aren't going to abolish themselves. They're the ones that have created these ecological conditions. They're not going to vote themselves out. One thing I want people to learn from COP is that we need to abolish capitalism and that will be the only way we can get ourselves out of the climate crisis and imperialism and colonialism. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like like a sadness, really. That's, that's one thing I personally also don't want people... Because we all feel sad and nihilistic, but 
personally I feel like we need to be done with nihilism. Like we need to learn from systems around the world. We need to learn from global south movements. Like Britain needs to get over itself. Basically that's how I feel. We need to learn from the people who are doing it now. So that's how I feel. No more nihilism because we need to get it done. We have we have no choice. So no more nihilism. That's what I'd say. But you can still be sad. <laughs> I am sad. <laughs> but not nihilistic. They actually had a, quite a nice... Uh, they said they laugh cry all the time. Yeah. I feel like that is a great term. Just laugh crying. <laughs> it's just like... Oh. Yeah. Definitely done that recently. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what is this emotion? <laughs> Nourish Scotland is a charity working for a fair, healthy and sustainable food system. They hosted a whole series of fringe events during COP, including one called Young Seeds for Your Thoughts, Towards a Just Food System. The event itself was organised by Feedback, a campaign group that seeks to challenge power, catalyse action and empower people to achieve change within the food system. This year, Feedback's been running a participatory action research project with seven young people, some of whom are from racialized minority backgrounds and some of whom are neurodiverse. As you'll hear, participatory action research is an approach that challenges the idea that research has to be done by academics or by experts from outside the group being studied. Instead, it centers ordinary people as researchers. It's based on the premise that everyone's innate knowledge and skills are every bit as valuable as academic knowledge. And in a sense, it's about decolonizing research. The event at COP was a chance for the young people involved in the research project to share their experience and their findings. They gave an incredibly powerful presentation that covered a lot of ground. In it, they highlighted some of the many power imbalances they came across within the food system and suggested ways that we can all foster positive change. After the event, I spoke to two of the participants, Warami Jackson and Marlon Opigo. I'm Warami Jackson. I'm a 22-year-old agricultural student who is very passionate about all things food and all things agriculture. I'm also Nigerian, yeah. Nigerian and Lebanese, yeah. I'm Marlon. I'm 25 years old. So I got into the food sector simply through an um, internship that was with growing communities. It piqued my interest at the time because I was looking to do something completely different because my background was within it's, it's finance. I studied at a university. And yeah, since then it's been, a, it's been an amazing journey and it's brought me here today. We're at COP26, you know, we've just, we've just come off stage and um, I feel like the possibilities now are almost endless. I feel so immersed within, within the sector and I'm just hoping to learn a lot more as well. I got into food and things that have to do with food through different formats. So for food, it's always been really important to me because my mum cooked a lot. So there was a lot of home cooking, 
local buying from the markets and things like that. I just always never knew how my food was grown, but I was really interested in food. So due to all these factors and a couple gap years when I decided I didn't want to do something I was good at, like chemistry for petroleum engineering, I didn't want a generic nine to five job because I was more hands on. I decided I wanted to go into the food and agricultural sector and found my university and yeah, my story of food began, well, visualized rather from there. I, you know, started learning on my course applied farm management, which was very broad. Topics of organic and things were mentioned, but not in full knowledge. So that was my mindset. I was really going into, had plans for like conventional ways of growing. So it got to the second year where I had to do a placement. The types I saw that I could tap into weren't accessible due to the need for some kind of driver's license, UK driver's license, tractors one, and spraying licenses, which I was in the kind of in the works on pre-pandemic. Yeah, so I started looking for something that would kind of accept me. So then I found on Facebook the opportunity for a placement with feedback and growing communities combined. Shout out to Sophie. And that's when I was really exposed to organic and, you know, agroecological, practical ways of farming. And I realized the amount of passion that I had for that and the passion I had for small scale farming and urban farming, you know, accessible farming, where people could see where they're growing their food and really understood the benefits, like the social, economic and sustainable benefits of the type of system. I concluded my placement with them and found the power process. And, you know, I took my lived experience and story and yeah, that's how we got here today. So for the last four months, a group of young people like myself have been involved in a participatory action research project and this is all um, about how we can work towards a just and regenerative food system. So um, based on our personal and collective lived experiences, how can we work towards a just and regenerative food system? That was the mother question and we had an umbrella question under that which was what is your reality of the food system? So these were like the main anchors behind a lot of the research that we was doing. But we had many questions below, but that was the key question we wanted to, we, we wanted to ascertain from sort of from people. This came from more or less discussions in a group. So we just sat together and felt like, what kind of questions can we ask people? And leading to that, like, what is the outcome? What kind of information do we want to pull from people? Once we just started with that question, that main question, it just started flowing, like question after question, we felt like this is the direction we want this conversation to go. Participatory action research, PAR for short, is a research process of inclusion in a very succinct way to say, as opposed to leaving research into the hands of scientific researchers alone and things, you rely on layman knowledge, people who have experienced things relative to whatever you're researching. And you kind of use them as the muse to find out you know, your objectives and your theories and your research question and eventually your results, your analysis. So it's giving 
power to the lab rats. The lab rats conduct the experiments and you know they kind of also analyze from their point of view because I mean who better? Who better to do this? So that's what makes it different is finding the people out there that are going through the things and then using them as the muse to kind of find solutions to the problem because if you don't have enough knowledge about it, deep knowledge, which has to do with like feelings and values and how well it affects the people, you wouldn't know how well to handle the problem. So that's what makes it different. Our research took um, two forms. We did analysis, qualitative analysis, which is basically surveys and interviews. So one-on-one, -on -one, asking people their stories. When we went to the interview stages, we decided the kind of people that we wanted to ask questions and the kind of questions that we wanted to ask them that kind of had to do with our personal stories. Yeah, for example, maybe me finding out knowledge on culturally appropriate foods or labor or access to those kind of things or just knowledge on supply chains. It was part of my story, so I wanted to know those things. And yeah, Marlon could probably share what he went out there with his interview to find and his target audience and stuff. Yeah, so predominantly, um, we were just aiming to speak with young people. So this would be between the ages 21 to about 25, 26. But actually in our survey responses, they were open to people outside of that age group. So even though it was targeted towards young people, we wanted to hear from a diverse range. Um, we didn't really want to leave any stone unturned because I feel like everybody's experiences and their stories do matter. But our target audience was the age range that I mentioned. Because young people, I feel, feel that their voices are maybe less heard or is not as important. So we wanted to give also them agency, like they can actually have a say and speak on what, what experiences they have, what are their struggles. Some of the things that came out of our research were we found that a vast amount of young people got their food consciousness, as I'll call it, like when they decide this is what I want to eat, this is the lifestyle I want to take, when they gain independence. That's at, a, at an age when they're probably moving out of their parents' house or moving into uni. Just a stage where you have a choice. So that was one of the main findings, and we got, we got that from, um, yeah, finding out that, yeah, that's when they thought, oh, I want to eat this, I want to eat that. You know, some people stay in their habitual ways, but a vast amount of them was like, yeah, this was the point that I gave my food consciousness, so that was one of the findings. Another finding was that a large amount of people do not think about farmers when they go food shopping, and this is also due to the disconnect between farmers and consumers. And yeah, this is also because of longer food supply chains. We also found out that a lot of them are plastic conscious as opposed to climate conscious. So when they hear climate consciousness, what they mainly think of is plastic, which kind of shows the food and agricultural sector not being included in the climate agenda. So the people don't even know how much of a contributor and solution the food and agricultural system is. So that's what we found. And we also found that people will always choose price and affordability as opposed to, you know, value and 
nutritional content, which is within reason because of how accessible and how um, the price of food is sort of like a facade. It's not real, it's not reflective. And, you know, I also found out they're very aware of fast fashion and how not to be involved in fast fashion because the workers and laborers are definitely not paid, but they don't equate it back to the food system. Taking it back to the, the price of food in high-end outlets, it's not reflective of the effort that's being put. So the farmers definitely are not paid a noble price for that. So that was one of the findings that they do not conceptualize farmers being paid their effort and being compensated, but then they realize this for other sectors of work and life, like the clothing sector and the fashion sector. And we found that more time, the reason why they don't really want to take the extra effort to go to the local stores is because it's too far from them, which kind of shows how there's not enough accessibility in terms of availability. Like there's not enough local markets around you. If you're in a town, there's probably like one, and to get there, you, it's not very much possible as to, compared to like the next door high-end outlets at your left, at your right, you know, so it's easier. And they'll always choose the easy way because they're used to it. And probably because of values that haven't been awakened yet. I would say if we can just inspire people in within, within our own communities, within our circle, to just make little changes within themselves. Because I feel like it's, it's a systemic change that we're kind of working towards. So it's built of old habits need to be thrown away and we need to replace them with new good habits. So the only way that's gonna happen is doing your bit little by little, consciously making decisions. Like I want to shop local once, maybe twice a week, just cause I know it's gonna help the planet, it's gonna help the environment. And actually it might just help myself cause it's more nutritional. I'm saving myself time cause I don't have to travel too far to certain outlets, but I feel it's just inspiring. I, I just, I just want to be able to inspire. If it's one person and they make the, those changes, they can go and inspire the next person. So I'm hoping this is what the research will do, um, really giving people a voice and uh, allowing them to say, do you know what, I can take control of what I can do personally, but I know it's, creating, it's, it's, it's gonna move us towards a bigger change, create a bigger impact within society. So I would say that was, that's one thing, you know that I hope it would happen. <laughs> I hope people gain real empathy towards the situation. And I just hope people are very empathic towards the farmers, you know, towards local stores, towards themselves as well, their gut health, the importance of, you know, nutrition in your food towards the climate, towards the environment. I just hope they build the consciousness. Like, I hope the conversation never dies. I hope the story keeps forming and keeps being told. And I hope also that there is an opportunity for people who are actually being affected by the situation to be part of the decision-making, to give context to what can be done. Because there are lots of solutions available, but are they really realistic to do what we need them to do? You know? And I just hope that people realize that 
you can do something about the situation and your tiny effort does not go unnoticed. You can make a difference. And to be so authentic, to bring other people along with them because that's the only way that we can get there. If we have a story and there's no one to hear it, then there can't be any change. We just have a theory. That's all we have, but we don't have a strategy if no one's there to listen to it. So I just hope the story never dies and people just keep being intentional about how they live their lives and think about their values, like reassess their values. Because when you do that, you have like the emotional equipment to have mindful action towards yourself, the world, the environment, the farmers and the food system. And I hope as a whole and as a broad view that the food and agricultural system is actually is really, really introduced as one of the solutions to the climate change because it has so much potential. There is a recording of the event on Feedback's YouTube channel, and I'd really encourage you to check it out. You can find a link in the episode description. Another hive of food-related activity during COP was the Landworkers Alliance Agroecology Hub, which was hosted in a community space called Civic House. One of the events that took place there was a discussion titled Solidarity and Organising with Migrant Workers in the Food System. It was organised by Catherine McAndrew from the Landworkers Alliance and also featured Sarah Woolley, Secretary General of the Bakers, Food and Allied Workers Union. It was a fascinating, challenging and really eye-opening discussion that highlighted the need for solidarity between people in different parts of the food system. Alongside Catherine and Sarah, there was an empty chair to represent those food workers who aren't able to speak in public forums like this about their experiences and their needs. I started by asking Catherine, what do workers' rights have to do with food sovereignty? For me, food sovereignty has always meant like, the control of the food system by the producers and consumers of food. And this is a concept that, which has been sort of formulated by Levia Campesina, and that is an organisation which is made up of uh, mostly of peasant producers. The UK was probably one of the first countries where, you know, the peasantry was forced off the land. And so increasingly what you have in this country is that food production is it's undertaken by wage labourers. It's undertaken by people who are, rather than producing stuff on their land and selling it to, to others, it's people who are selling their labour to larger sort of capitalist businesses. So in my mind, I think wage workers are a key agent in creating food sovereignty because they are the people that have an interest in really changing how the food production system works and having it so their interests are represented. Agricultural workers are traditionally they're seen as very exploited, seen as very, uh, you know, very marginalised due to shortages of uh, agricultural labourers in the UK at the moment. There's a lot of discussion about this issue, but it's always discussed in terms of agricultural workers just as inputs into the system. The, the humanity and agency of these workers, is ne it just never seemed to come out in any of the discussions. And in a country like the UK, where you know, a lot of food producers are now divorced from the land, a lot of them are now you know, people selling their labour to larger companies, I think a key agent in creating food sovereignty in this country is agricultural workers and food production workers themselves. There's a shortage of agricultural labourers at the moment, and so that means I think agricultural labourers potentially could have a, 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 you know, a better bargaining position. Uh, also, it means that the agricultural labourers that are going to be coming over are going to be worked a lot harder and be working a lot longer hours, 
many of agricultural workers come from come from Eastern Europe, where currencies have appreciated quite quite significantly since accession to the European Union in sort of 2005. Uh, whereas the UK's currency is losing its value, so workers are going to be earning a lot less when they come over here. And in addition, as well, post Brexit, there are going to be some changes to the migration system. One of these, uh, you know, sort of proposals, and the one I think is going to be the one that becomes the norm is the seasonal worker pilots. So the way that works is it's a temporary migration program where workers are recruited by two recruitment agencies, Concordia and Powerforce. The workers, they re they're recruited and so they come over to the UK on a temporary basis. They're here for six months. They're assigned a specific farm. It's very, very difficult for them to move from that farm. If they're sacked from that farm, they're deported. I think it really shows the um, the purpose of the new immigration patrols that the Conservative government are, are, are imposing. It's not about increasing wages or protecting workers' rights. It's, it's utterly ridiculous. What it is, is about making the, uh, the workers that come here increasingly dependent on, it, on their employer. Their employers can dismiss them and, you know, if you're dismissed, it's not just you've lost your job, you're having to re-uproot yourself. So with the seasonal workers pilot, one example that's come out quite recently is of a group of workers who participated in this from Barbados. So this is about, I think about around 100 workers came over as part of the scheme. They were billeted on a strawberry plantation, I think, in Kent. And the conditions of work on this farm were awful. Like uh, people were placed in caravans that were, you know, unsanitary, toilets were not, not functional. People were being asked to work very, very long hours. And if they couldn't work at the rate that the bosses were expecting, they would not be offered work the next day. And additionally, because also the, the, the costs of housing and uniform and food are sort of are, you know, extracted from workers' paychecks. So some, some of these workers were earning less than six pounds a day for a 10 hour day. It's, it's um, you know, so that, that level of exploitation is just, is just extreme. And of course, as well, you know, as part of that contract, it's not like, you know, they can't leave the farm, they can't go and get accommodation elsewhere. One of the uh, cases I ca we came across in Spain was uh, a case of uh, a company called Biosabor, which is uh, nominally an organic producer with, uh, with a very, very poor record of workers' rights. And one of the instances that happened at this enterprise was workers were being asked to spray plants with pesticides without protective gear being, being issued to them. So this made, made a lot of workers very sick. So we've got to see, like, all right, who in this, uh, in this setup has the interest in moving away from a sort of like, you know, a pesticide and agrochemical-based food production system? It's not the, the bosses of BS Board, definitely not. You know, they've got every incentive to continue producing in that way. Instead, it's the workers themselves who, in order to protect themselves and to protect their livelihoods, must seek to move towards a more sustainable, more organic way of producing things to both protect themselves and their health. So I think it's a combination of the conditions are going to be worsening, workers are going to be earning less, the migration system is changing in a very negative way, and also in many countries in Eastern Europe, namely in Belarus, for instance, which is a big, big, big source of labour for the seasonal workers programme, uh, there's been big social uprisings there in 2020 with a, a sort of a general strike by industrial workers. Uh, in Romania, you've seen, uh, you've seen general strikes there. I think you had a general strike there in 2017. In Poland, you've had uh, the women's strike over the right to access to abortion. And what you find is like experiences of struggle uh, travel along sort of migration paths. So when workers have experienced struggles in their own country, they're gonna carry that newfound sense of dignity to wherever they end up. So these combinations of factors make me think this is now the time to be looking at this. Additionally as well, 
This is a point that uh, European coordination of Via Campesina has made in relation to discussions around low wages and the high, high price. Of, the, the issue with organic food is often that, oh, organic food is more expensive. And I think that's, yes, that is true. Organic food takes longer to produce and therefore is, is, is always going to be more valuable than something that's been produced, you know, mass produced in a very short amount of time. We want organic food to be the main source of food in this country. You know, we want people to be, everyone to be able to afford and eat and take part in the consumption of, you know, good, high-quality, well-produced food. And in order for that to happen, wages have got to go up. Instead, at the moment, and this is the point that, e that ECVC have made, cheap supermarket-produced food is being used as an alternative by governments to social policy and improved wages. You can deal with a low-wage economy, you can have a low-wage economy if food is kept artificially cheap. However, the real price of keeping that food so cheap is the degradation of the land, the soil, and the people that are involved in food production. The supermarkets in this country are essentially four large corporations controlling 80% of the grocery market. That, in a sense, sets the conditions for the entire food production supply chain. If I remember correctly, the markup on a punnet of raspberries is about 33%. So of the price of a punnet of raspberries, 33% of that price is pure profit for the supermarket. And it's no wonder then for that, that Tesco earned about £2.7 billion in profit last year. This isn't Tesco's profit, this is workers' profit. It's workers that have made this money for them. It should be workers that are benefiting from this at the very, very least. Often you end up with a situation where you have intense competitions between farms that are trying to seek to, you know, produce the standards that the supermarkets want, which in turn ends up that, you know, the profit margins of these farms are often very, very low. And then these farms have almost no choice but to degrade the conditions of work on their farms in order to, you know, essentially just make enough money to survive. And even then it's quite difficult. Even then it's like not, not possible without a very, very large level of subsidies from central government. That's where I think the connection is, in a sense that, you know, it's both small organic farmers and, and, and agricultural workers are being exploited and uh, having their conditions set by the, by the same system, a system which is ultimately controlled by the supermarket corporations. When it comes to sort of organisation of these workers, I think the UK doesn't really have that much of an agricultural workers' movement at the moment. That's something I'm seeking to change. But there is a strong agricultural workers' movement based in Spain with the, with the SOXAT trade union and Italy as well with the USB trade union. These are organisations that regularly post updates about what they're doing, about the disputes they're involved in. I think the most practical thing that, that you know, the sort of bare minimum that someone can, someone can do in a situation is keeping aware of what the situation is in, in, in places like Almeria and seeing like, okay, well, if there is a strike of these workers, then we should be placing pressures on the supermarkets that are buying from, from the farms in question. Additionally, I think this is more, more further on, but I'm very inspired by an organization called the Coalition of Remarkably Workers, which is based in the United States. It's made up of Mexican tomato pickers based in Florida, and they, uh, when they were set up in 1993, were the worst paid farm workers in the United States. What they did was through a combination of taking strike action at, you know, on certain farms, and building links specifically with student groups, namely Student Farm Worker Alliance. This sort of alliance between consumers and producers of food uh, was able to sort of force a number of the um, large corporations that control the food system, the first one they managed to, to win over was Taco Bell, to sign up for national, you know, essentially sign up to some national agreements. And it's known as the Fair Food Program. So this would mandate that the, uh, that the corporation in question would pay about a cent extra for uh, for uh, a pun up tomatoes and then this would fund you know wage increases for the workers and also sign up to a worker-led uh, monitoring program of conditions 
What that agreement has managed to do is, is transform these workers from the lowest paid to the best paid. You've gone from $7 an hour on average to $14 an hour, and also has made massive improvements on sort of rates of sexual violence and you know, harassment of workers on, on a farm level. And so looking into the future, and this is what I, I'm kind of hoping to be looking into the practicalities of, we need consumer solidarity groups. Consumers need to get organised. Workers need to be in touch with these consumer groups. When disputes occur or when, when workers want to extract concessions from the supermarkets, these consumer groups are then able to say, we are not going to buy from you. Do you accept the, uh, the demands of the workers? Or we're not going to purchase your tomatoes until this is done, which then uh, increases the bargaining power of these workers. We are the, where the solutions are going to come from. It's getting down, organising, building links with one another, building links between organisations and, and coming up with plans to take our social movement forward. In that instance, COP has been an absolute, absolute success. I think we've made some excellent links between people and never mind the, never mind the buzzcocks in the convention centre. This episode of Farmerama was produced by me, Katie Revel, Olivia Oldham and Abby Rose. Thanks, as always, to the rest of the Farmerama team. Joe Barrett, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Dora Taylor. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett.